Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Lindsay Oliver, aka the Chief Mischief Maker. Lindsay is the founder and director of M4 Coaching and creator of Back to Work Without a Bump and Making Mischief. These groundbreaking programs are designed to help retain, support and unleash the true potential of all human beings, regardless of their labels. Lindsay is a champion of working mums and an advocate of gender balance in the workplace. She's passionate about helping parents, both male and female, female leaders and female business owners become the best versions of themselves, both in and out of work. I was introduced to Lindsay by a former colleague of mine and listener to the show, who, having worked with Lindsay through their parental leave, said that I had to get her on the show. The challenges that Lindsay helps consultants with are ones that many people in our industry deal with every day, but ones that rarely get the attention they deserve. Knowing the positive impact that Lindsay had had on this listener, as well as others in my network, I knew that she would make a fantastic guest, and she certainly didn't disappoint. We cover some really deep topics in this interview, and ones that I've never discussed with any other guests before, and I actually think don't get enough airtime in many consulting firms. 
These include the barriers that hold women back from climbing the career ladder, both structural and self-imposed, and what consulting firms and female leaders themselves can do to break through these. The relationship challenges that can be unique to those pursuing a consulting career or a high-flying corporate career in general, and the warning signs to look out for and conversations to have with your partner to ensure you are able to build a solid relationship and deal with any challenges as they arise. The unique challenges that parents face when it comes to building a career in consulting and what their firms and they themselves can do to manage these to help them achieve the balance of work life and home life that they're looking for. And finally, what those of us who are white men like me can do when it comes to diversity and inclusion in consulting and how we can help to support it to ensure that it improves. This was a fantastic interview and we go into detail on all of the topics I've just mentioned and more. So much so, we got carried away after the interview and we just kept going. As you will hear towards the end of today's episode, I've actually put some of our post-interview conversation back into the show because I thought it was such an important topic for you to hear about. I apologise if it sounds a little bit clunky, but hopefully the quality of the content and Lindsay's answers and what we're talking about will more than make up for the slight drop in the usual audio quality. For regular listeners, you will also know that I often ask my guests for resources. I will ask them for books, for websites, for workbooks that they can recommend to help you. And to exactly this question, Lindsay has created a free workbook that you can use to help you identify your own biases, both those that are conscious as well as those that are unconscious, and start to think about how you can make positive changes to reduce where these appear in your day-to-day -day life. Whether you are a senior leader who is looking to be the best role model they can be in their firm, or maybe you're a junior consultant looking to understand more about yourself so you can improve as you develop your career, I would highly recommend checking this workbook out. If you want to download it and you want to go through it, you can find it on Lindsay's website, which is www.makingmischief, mischief spelled M-S-C-H-I-E-F, dot com forward slash free dash workbook. And in case you didn't get a chance to note that down fast enough, I have put a link in the show notes for you as well. So if you go to the show notes for this episode, you can find it there and go straight to the workbook. So after that rather lengthy intro, let's get to it. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Oliver. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, for my listeners' benefits, you were recommended to me by a former colleague and listener who said coming back from parental leave themselves, just said how impactful and important what you had shared with them was and suggested that I get you on the show for other parents. And I know we're going to dive into it shortly, but also female leaders in particular. Now, before we go into that, because I know from our initial chat, there's so much to, to pick up. I think it'd be really good to give listeners a bit of context on your background and actually how you got to where you are today. Okay. So I was thinking about this actually as to where to start. So if I kind of go back to school, which was quite a long time ago now, but I went to an all girls school, which I wouldn't have preferentially have gone to if I had had my way. But I remember choosing my A-levels. I did really well at 
GCSEs and I remember choosing my A-levels and at that time I really wanted to do English, biology and art and I wasn't allowed to do it because it wasn't the classical combination, I was really sporty, I'd been led to a certain extent down a careers path to become a physiotherapist because what do you do with someone who's sporty and also can do science obviously, physio, all the work experience I'd done was to be a physio because that was all that the school would actually put me forward to. Anyway, so I changed my A-levels and I ended up doing biology, chemistry and maths and I didn't get my predicted grade so I didn't end up becoming a physio. And at that time it was not very popular to actually take a year out and I took a year out, I went to South Africa and I worked for the Wildlife Society of Southern Africa doing environmental education and group dynamic courses and stuff and it was amazing and I applied to Loughborough to do computing and management and the reason that I did that was because I thought right I need to get a job that pays quite well I'm not really sure what I want to do I've never touched a computer in my life but this feels quite sensible and it's Loughborough so I can go and do loads of sport there so that was pretty much how I made the decision but I went off to Loughborough and I did really well and really took to computing and management and I loved it because it was this hybrid between the techie piece and also the management science bit and that kind of set me up for where I think I've been successful in my career so I went off after university and got recruited into Guinness at the time who later became Diageo or already was Diageo and I spent 14 years there working through various different roles. So I was a bit of a techie. Then I became business analyst, project manager. I went into service delivery. And my last role that I did before I left was global program director. So I guess if I were to sum up why I think I was successful in corporate, and my old boss might say something very different, it's because I've always managed to be this kind of middle woman that can translate the techie requirements to the business and the business requirements to the techies. And yeah, and I can kind of like translate big concepts in and break them down into small, more bite-sized chunks. And I never realized how much of a skill that was until I got a little bit older and wiser and realized that actually there was something in it. So yeah, so that was kind of my classic corporate career. And seven years ago, I left. And that's where we get to today, which is the land of self-employment, which has been amazing, really. And so the obvious question, and thank you for teeing me up for it, is why did you leave? You were having, I guess, a very successful career by the sounds of it. You enjoyed it. You didn't become a physio. I didn't, no. No. Do you still, do you still play sport? Is oh, sport my God. A... I still do sport. Yeah, I'm a complete sports obsessive. What's your... It'll help. The only metaphors I can do, and I'm not very good at them, is sport. So help me. And I'll, if I need them, I'll try and pull out a sports metaphor from the kit bag. Well, so what I'm currently obsessed with and I've been obsessed with for years is CrossFit. So, oh, very cool. Yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. You're probably stronger than I am as well. I've got a terrible squat, not a very good deadlift. Do you do it competitively? Mm, kind of, but for fun, not not professionally or anything like that, but for fun. Yeah, I do do competitions and 
yeah, the kids have got into it. My other half, he does it as well. It's kind of a bit of a family affair, I have to say. We will come back to this, but it does say, as I, I was teeing us up before I took us down that tangent, and I, apologies, we will go down a few, uh, I'm sure, tonight. It's okay. What was it? So you were there, hugely successful career, and then you said seven years ago, you decided to go into self-employment. And it's worth also saying, you, or, and, or correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't go into self-employment as a project manager or a program manager. No, no, I took a completely different career path. So what, what was it? So when I was in Diageo, we did this program and it was an amazing program called the Diageo Leadership Performance Program. And they took the top, I think it was 300 leaders at the time through this year long leadership program where you had an external coach and you had two five day intensives. And mine we're in Shanghai and Kuala Lumpur and we all came together and we had all of these global leaders in a room and it was incredible. It was really incredible. And Diageo do leadership programs really well. They're currently getting a lot of awards for kind of diversity and inclusion and things like that. So at the time I was with my coach and we were talking about what I really like to do and the thing that I really liked was people. It wasn't really around servers or networks or those types of things. It was the people side of it. And so I started to realize that actually I'd been coaching teams for a while and global teams for that matter. So it really interested me and I was becoming less enamored with the boxes and the wires and the hardware. So at the time, there was a coaching director there who's become a... Who's a really great friend of mine still and she set me up to do some cross-functional coaching in Diageo so I got to work with some people in global supply and from other parts of the business that I wouldn't necessarily have had any kind of relationships with so I started to coach and at that time I hadn't really had any major plan to leave and my career had been great and I was always in the right quartile for performance and you know, I was on all of these succession plans and I'd never, ever really experienced what I now know as the glass ceiling until I got the label of Mrs. And I started to experience some very strange things going on. And I thought, what, what is this? What's happening? And then even more so when I became a mummy. So when I became a mummy, all sorts of things were going on and... I remember pushing my eldest, my firstborn, round. I live near Dorney Lake, so I remember walking around Dorney Lake. And as I was pushing him in the, wheel, in the wheelchair, not the wheelchair, in the pushchair, in my mind I was forming what kind of programme would I really like to return back into the organisation because there was all sorts of things going through my head at the time. And I didn't have a great transition back in from maternity leave the first time that I left. And I was thinking is this just me? And I was told at the time it was a one-off and yeah, it was just unfortunate that I'd had a, a not great experience. And I was still really thinking, well, it can't just be me. Is it just me? But the more I talked to people about it, the more I realized that actually there are lots of issues that people face when they become parents and when they go off maternity leave or if they go off on any kind of leave and return back into the organization and and these big transitions that come up in life they change us and so so I just started to get really curious about that side of things then I got pregnant again and I had my second child and 
I went off on maternity leave again and my husband and I had had a number of conversations and this was part of the big challenge that we had. So there were two of us with two global careers in two separate organizations. And when I went back to work after the, after my first kid, Ollie, who's my husband, he had two weeks on two weeks off in Chicago and I had a global role and I was also booking in my travel around that. And we just, kind of came together and thought this just will end in divorce very very quickly (laughs) and it wasn't proving to be much fun because it just felt like we were single parents and it just wasn't working but I was the breadwinner if you took who earned the biggest salary and things like that so it it was a big it was a big big change but I had the idea to do something different and so we decided that it would be me that would go off and do something different. Wow and so many different bits for us to pick up on and I think you know you made the point there around anytime there's a big change in your life it's it's an important moment and I think we there's a few a few for us to to dig into there and maybe we start at that point you made around the glass ceiling and come on to the relationship piece and the parenting side because you made the point there you know you would never experience the glass ceiling I know through your mischief makers you now you coach women and support female leaders to reach their potential. Yeah. Be really interested and in maybe to start with that point you made about you didn't feel it until you became a missus. A missus, yeah, that was the first point that something was different. And, you know, we're recording this. I am a white male, so I I have no idea about any of yeah. this and I'll claim ignorance throughout. What what was that? Because you've you've had this very successful career, you've not experienced any of these perceived or real challenges that other women face. What changed when you became Mrs. Oliver? So I don't know it as a fact, all I can because it's my perception. But what I think it was is that or what I think it is actually is that when I got married and when other people get married, there's then this expectation as to when you're gonna have babies. And unconsciously people are not allowed to mention that but there's almost this unconscious expectation about well you know she's going to be off on maternity leave soon but at the time you couldn't really ask if you're trying for a baby or anything like that and so so yeah I think there's just this stereotyping and bias that comes in that when you hit that transition and you hit that major event in your life people then just start to make lots of assumptions lots of assumptions and a lot of them unsaid assumptions and so I remember having to have conversations where I would say things that I wouldn't necessarily have found myself saying beforehand which is I'm interested in doing this job I'm interested in doing this role and I'm going to be around for a while and I'm not going anywhere almost almost to overcompensate for the fact that people were potentially thinking that I was going off somewhere and even if I was going off somewhere I was still what I call a career committed parent. I was still committed to having a great career, regardless of whether I was a wife, a mother, a CrossFit fanatic or whatever. So yeah, so, and there's lots of things around that, that there's a lot of documented evidence around maternal war bias and the gender stereotypes that do exist. Yeah. And why don't we come on to that? Because to that point, I'm sure you coach a number of women who aren't married Uh and are looking to to climb in the career ladder, but are facing challenges. What are those challenges? What what is it that 
prevents women from from reaching the top? What is it that it creates that glass ceiling? Is it all created by you know, society? Is it psychological things for certain women? What is it that creates that glass ceiling? So I think there's no easy answer to that, but I personally believe that there are definitely systemic challenges and systemic barriers. So I've been raised in a patriarchal system, and so have you. And there are these rules and expectations and unwritten rules and expectations around what that means and what that means for boys and what that means for girls. And you see it so much. And I remember being really shocked, actually, at even some of the gender stereotypes that still exist in children's programs these days that just shocked me. And I've sent some of my kids' school books home because they've had racist and sexist comments in because it's a piece of, you know, a book that is just part of the syllabus and no one's really checked it for about 25,000 years or something. So... So there's all of these rules and expectations that are placed on us if you have a certain label. So if we keep it generic, because I talk about losing the labels, because labels, as soon as we introduce a label, that starts to potentially either help us in life or hinder us in life. So yeah, so there's those systemic barriers and challenges. And then as you dig deeper, there will also be organisational elements to that as well. So often I can go into a company and I can see some of the systemic challenges that exist. And a lot of that exists in HR processes because of subjectivity. A lot of it is in the way that we think about risk. A lot of it is in the way that we classify leaders and the language we use around leaders. So there's all of that, which is a massive, rich melting pot of information to start with. And then there are what I would call the self-imposed barriers. So what are the messages that you and I have absorbed into our own set of values and beliefs that, again, either help us or hinder us? And typically, and this is a generalization, of course, and it impacts people in different ways, women are taught not to be too much of anything. They're taught to be helpers. They're taught to stay small, the smaller the better, like even physically to stay small. It's important to be pretty. It's important not to answer back. It's important to not question authority. It's important not to get angry or not to show your emotions or not to be emotional. And there's all of these rules and expectations that have been set on us as well that we absorb. And they're different in different family units. So, So it's not a straightforward answer as to what are the actual barriers but what I do through making mischief is I help to look at what are those barriers that get in the way of women in particular from progressing or performing at their very best and some of those can be things around process but a lot of the work that I do do is to understand and to unpack individuals patterns of behavior because the more that we can shift our own internal patterns and our own beliefs the more it frees us up to actually be successful whatever successful means actually in the world because successful is just this kind of like vagueness of what is success but yeah yeah and we... not an easy answer and not really an answer no but... <laughs> well but I, I think it to your point that and I, I was teeing it up a little bit. I tried to do my best in the question. I think from what you're saying, there is 
there are no one one reason. And I definitely think we'll come on to, I'd, I'd be keen to discuss some of those bits you mentioned around the, particularly the sort of structures internally in companies. Yeah. Because for the people listening to this podcast who are consulting leaders or con- junior consultants, that's something they'll be able to change. I think, um, as an aside, which are the best and worst children's television shows? You mentioned, oh. so- and I, won't, I won't dwell too long on the societal element, but I'm, I have friends and listeners who are parents. What what should they watch versus what shouldn't they? What shouldn't they watch or what should they watch? Well, I'll tell you, the Octonauts is amazing. Octonauts, okay. Octonauts is amazing and it's very inclusive. Some of the worst ones are those that are based around kind of football players and even even though they try to be inclusive in one way, they actually aren't as well. These days, I have to say, children, children's telly in particular has got a lot better. So you see a lot more diversity around presenters in comparison to what we see in mainstream adult television and the news and things like that. So there is a lot more diversity and inclusion and they do talk about a lot more wide and varied subjects. But where it really comes in, and this is where it really comes in, is in toys, in adverts, in movies some movies are better than others but that it's just all of the unconscious messages that we absorb around you know wearing makeup what you have to look like boys can't express their emotions man up i mean there's just so much and some of the movies of the 80s are just appalling like appalling yeah to that point around what people absorb and i I think it might be an interesting point to spend some time on because i know you see it and i appreciate everyone's different everyone's had different families, upbringings, contexts. I would be interested if, given the people you've coached and sort of those you know, bit informally or formally through through your programs, are there a certain reoccurring set of, let's say, internal beliefs that you find female consultants who are looking to climb the career ladder have that limit them? Are there, from your work, is are there, say, a top two or three that you find yourself regularly supporting female leaders through? So if it's not that simple, it's not that simple. But what a lot of what comes up is around confidence. And that's almost initially the what people self diagnose with around I'm lacking in confidence for or I've been told I'm not confident. I've been given this feedback about not being confident. And actually, when you get underneath it, it's got nothing to do with confidence. So a lot of that is around the perception of what a confident person looks like and acts like and how they behave and things like that. So I would say confidence is the banner that we often start to unpack with. The other one is imposter syndrome, which isn't necessarily something that is exclusively for women, but it's the fact that people think that they're going to get caught out, that they're not as good as they think they are. And again, it's, it's unpacking that untruth because it's not a truth. So there's that. And then it's not really a a bucket, but what generally happens, and if I think about myself as well, I twisted and contorted myself to fit into a structure to be successful for whatever success means to me or meant to me at the time, because I didn't think it was okay to be myself. Now, that wasn't a logical thought because I was doing really well and I was performing and I was getting the roles and I was getting loads of experience and things like that. But it was just, it was kind of conforming. 
And I talk about this quite a lot, actually, because, as you know, my, I gave myself a self-appointed job title of chief mischief maker. And part of the reason for that was permission to ask the challenging questions, because a lot of the time people don't necessarily want the challenging questions or I thought it was wrong to ask the challenging questions or I don't know. It it limited me. It limited me just to be known as a coach because a coach wasn't really what I was doing. So I changed my job title and it gave me a lot more freedom about how I was and how I behaved and how I spoke about the area that I work in now. And and it's just really interesting because it's almost taking on or unleashing a different version of my identity. And there's a great coaching tool that I use, which is called Logical Levels. And you, if you Google it, you can find it. And basically, it's a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is identity. Underneath that is values and beliefs. Underneath that is skills and capabilities. Underneath that is behavior. And underneath that is environment. And essentially, the higher up the triangle you go the more it has an influence on anything else underneath that so by giving myself an identity statement of chief mischief maker it enabled all of these different beliefs to actually come about and behaviors and skills and capabilities that I have anyway it just allowed me to access it in a different way and and I think that's a really important point just to go back to the question that you originally asked which was people that come to me a lot of the work that we do are around identity statements. And when we get new identities kind of like put on us, like Mrs., like Mummy, we don't actually spend the time thinking about how that impacts us and whether it is actually an identity statement or whether it's just a behavior. Because if it's just a behavior, it's not who you are, it's just how you behave. And so a lot of the time when you think about I'm not confident, as soon as you say I'm not confident, that actually is an identity statement that I am this and I'm not this. And actually, you can always find somewhere in someone's life where they are hugely confident, like hugely confident. And therefore, it's no longer an identity statement. So it's how to work those ones out and yeah, and to get people to focus on the identity statements that really enable them to thrive and to be the very best versions of themselves. And you mentioned there, so I've I've just loaded this up on Google, so I've got the levels in front of me. Oh, yeah. you, you mentioned there that influence goes down the pyramid. Yeah. So identity influences beliefs, beliefs influence capability, which yeah. on one level I can completely understand. On the other level, I'd be curious how the lower levels influence the upper levels. So if I, and what I mean by that is, if I'm in a, a male-dominated environment where, you know, sort of alpha male is the, be- is the behavior that gets rewarded, well, am I then going to behave like that? Am I going to build my capabilities around something that reinforces that behavior? Sort of, does it equally drive upwards as it falls, as it comes downwards? Or how does that tension play out? Yeah, I mean, so in essence, the the level below can influence can influence the level above. So a great example will be a lot of people, a lot of organisations want to do culture change, and they think about the culture change, and all they do is rebrand the office and move some furniture around, and say that these are the new values. So the shifting things around in the office is an environmental change only, and it can make a big difference for a while, but you can have 
the new values on the wall, but if how people are behaving still associates back to the old values, you're never going to get a, a massive amount of change. So environmental changes can be really positive. So as an example, you could feel more confident wearing something different in a certain situation. Like if you have a big board meeting, actually changing what you wear can have a difference in how you feel and how you show up. But, but that's just an environmental change. The real power will be shifting what you believe to be true about yourself and the identity that you have walking into that board meeting. So yeah, you're right. It can it can move up and down, but the higher you change, the more impact it has. And for someone listening to this, and I say male or female, because I, 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 I agree or, with... Or, or other or, gender identities. Or other gender identities, because I, I fully agree with what you're saying that... This isn't a female-only challenge. You know, I'm sure there's been times when I felt I have to act up for that is prevalent in consulting, banking, or you know, quite a lot of the professions and other industries. If someone's listening to this and thinking, ah, I have that crisis of confidence that, like you say, maybe having listened to this, they've unpacked as more of an identity challenge. Are there any questions or resources or books that you, you would suggest they either think of, you know, questions they think about, books they read, resources they go to, anything you would give them to start to unpack this themselves? The really interesting stuff to look at is our beliefs. And a lot of those are unconscious. We can have conscious beliefs that we go, oh, yeah, I believe this to be true. I believe this to be true. I believe this to be true. But you can do some really interesting stuff around money. So what do I believe to be true about money? What do I believe to be true about work? What do I believe to be true about working women? What do I believe to be true about being a consultant? So even if you look at the consultant role, there are so many beliefs around what makes a good consultant and what makes a great consultant or what makes a not so great consultant. And what we do is we take on those as fact and they're not fact. And so the more that you can really start to peel back the layers of the onion and unfortunately once you start peeling back the layers of the onion there is no end point it is just a a deepening and a deepening and a deepening level well yeah you just get to a deeper level of understanding about yourself and where there's a lot of commonality actually is that we collectively especially in consultancies and in big organizations the culture in particular and just the culture in general tends to look towards external validation as to whether you're doing a good job versus internal validation. And a lot of that is because we're all about 360 feedback. It's around what the client says. It's around, have you hit this number? What's in your PDR? What's this? What's this? What's this? And so we're continually looking for evidence about why we're doing well or why we're not doing well, as opposed to internally validating and looking to our own self-worth and our own self-esteem for validation so regardless of what anyone says if we feel okay within ourselves we're going to be okay but the level of trust within ourselves about that is it varies considerably because you can get narcissists who take it to the extreme but yeah it's around the internal validation and one of the things that I say a, a lot is we look at feedback, we look at 360 feedback, but feedback says more about the other person giving the feedback than the person they're actually giving that feedback to. Yeah, no, I, I, there was a, a Gary Vaynerchuk quote, and I, I, I won't ask your opinion on Gary Vaynerchuk, but he said along the lines of, 
take feedback with a pinch of salt because 95% of people giving feedback don't understand your personal context. And I know it's something guests of mine before have made the point of actually feedback is only as useful as the giver and the context they have of you, but also the esteem with which you hold them. Because everyone has feedback on you. I'm sure a lot of people have feedback on me. Um, but it's how relevant that is based on how much they know about you elsewhere uh, would be. What you were mentioning there around external validation made me jump to something that's quite structural in consulting. And I'd be interested in your take on some of those structural components because you, you mentioned there around external validation and identity. And I think in consulting, and this is just an example, the grade system immediately creates identity and external validation. Oh, completely, you know? completely, completely. So if I'm an analyst, I am lesser than a, a partner. And I'm not, I'm not saying any consulting firms necessarily view it like that, but there's an implicit assumption. I've also had guests who have talked about previously that, so Matt Rogan at Two Circles highlighted that they actually did some work showing that the way they craft job interviews can affect female applicants because totally. different for instance, men are more likely to look at, I think he said, lists of bullet points and go, that's me. Women are less likely to, and they've got the statistical data to prove it. What are those structural challenges that you see as, I guess you'd say, commonplace across consulting that hold back female leaders in this instance, but potentially put those glass ceilings on anyone? So it depends, right? So attraction, retention, progression as the three main areas. There are definitely systematic challenges in attraction. And a lot of people are quite conscious about this now. So as you alluded to, the way a job description is worded can put off people. It, not yeah. just women, but people. Yeah. The way we often say that we're recruiting for difference, and yet our recruitment processes are set up for sameness. So you could have psychometric tests. You have to pass psychometric tests at a certain level now you may exclude people who have absolute genius ideas but don't actually do well in psychometric tests and when we think about fitting in you're automatically being exclusive and fitting in is often because there is a challenge with managing people who are different to us and that isn't necessarily about the person being recruited as opposed to the person who is leading and managing that team and how to truly lead and manage a diverse team and be inclusive. So sometimes, a lot of the time it's projected out towards the applicant as opposed to directed back towards someone who's more senior in a position as to their learning and their expansion and their leadership. So there's that. Retention is also an issue. And if even if I think about myself, I could have been retained. Like I absolutely could have been retained. And I love corporate. I love everything to do with corporate. And I like the challenge of big organizations and consultancies and things like that. And I know that I could have been retained if someone had have had a different conversation with me. Would my career have gone down a different route? Probably. But I could have been retained. And then there's there's progression as well. And I think that we become, especially in consulting, there is such a clear path to the next level. And there is such a set criteria as, as to how to get to the next level. 
and yet you can potentially exclude some absolute amazing people in that process because you're either in that process or you're out that process you either do that or you don't do that and what I see which impacts retention and progression in general for consulting is the big four letter word called time and the amount of time that people spend in the office the expectation that is there about the amount of time that you spend doing your job, the amount of hours you're meant to be in, the amount of hours you're meant to spend in client, the amount of hours that you're meant to then put in around internal work, the amount of hours that you're meant to put in networking, the amount of hours is just extreme. And and yet hours and FaceTime has a lot of clout to whether you get to the next level. And if you don't, want to do those hours and that doesn't necessarily mean whether it's to have a family or whether to go to CrossFit or whether to go on holiday or whether to care for your aging parents or whether you've got a dog and that needs to have a walk or whatever it is that time-based model excludes in my opinion that's not a fact it's it's hey that's why that's why I've got you on the show if I wanted fact I could go somewhere else Uh, and (laughs) I'm curious on the time one, because I think it is a, a broader point across the piece. And time brings us on to another topic that we'll come on to in a second. But I think you're right that broadly consultancies are are less, are historically less good at this. I think they are changing. And you know, I've had guests on from some consultancies that are deliberately making changes to this. I guess totally. with, with something like time, I, how do you balance it? And And the answer to this, it might be easy, but... To your point, if someone's like, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to, I've got more to life. I've got CrossFit, I've got family, I've got dog. I wish I had a dog. It's a few years. Um, <laughs> but how do you then, for those people who can, maybe don't have that, and I'm not saying that's a healthy way to be, but have said, look, I'm going to just hammer my career and do, you know, 12, 15 yeah. hour days because I can make partner in nine years. And, you know, again, for them, that's success at the moment. How do you balance the world where you have people doing that with people who want to to have you know other things in their lives and do other things, is it that you you need to get people to work less on the other side so it balances? Do you have to have different career progression approaches? How how do you approach that so that some people who want to do other things can, and those that don't don't necessarily feel put out, should we say, because they feel they're progressing slower? It's a hard one, and I guess having step out of the so from my career point of view having stepped out of that and I was doing a lot of hours and I spent a lot of hours traveling the world and a lot of hours in meetings and a lot of hours on on calls when I was having a dinner party I mean it was ridiculous because I felt I had to do that to be successful I felt obliged to do that I felt that that was the only way that it was possible to progress and I think for me the leaders of organizations and in consultancies you know when you get to partner level I think we really need to look at the value contribution of a person and not necessarily the volume contribution of a person because they're two totally different things And I would say historically, we've rewarded on volume. 
And the more you can get done, the more successful you will be versus actually, I, I challenge people a lot of the time. And I learned this from um, one of a, a great mentor that I, I have actually still. And one of, one of the things he says is, I challenge all leaders that come into my, into my room to take 30% of meetings out of their diary to take 30% out and not to fill them with other meetings, but to take 30% of meetings out of their diary and to see how successful, how much more successful they can be by doing less. And there's a great clip with Bill Gates where he says that kind of one of his greatest lessons was doing less, doing less to do more. And, and I know we speak about it a lot and I know that you're a big fan of Tim Ferriss and things like that, but out of all of the people who have read Four Hour Work Week, how many people actually do end up working a four hour work week? Very true. And uh, <laughs> fun, and how many, and the, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, is stick to what I think is a hugely healthy rule of check your emails twice a day. Because yes, behind um, behind a book with such a as he says himself, sort of a cheesy, gimmicky title, there's a lot of sound principles and you know you, meetings you mention. I think for some, and I, I just from my sample of guests on this show, and maybe for other listeners, that's an indication of what leads to success is peep, it's changing. And I think my guests have been on the right side of it. But I go into particularly when I was a consultant, you work with clients, and there is a cult of busy, you know, yeah. if I to your point around meetings of if I'm in 50 meetings a week, I'm being productive. Um, and like I say, it's actually the advice I've had from all of my guests on this show seems to have been the opposite. Totally. But there still seems to be this prevalent culture across corporate Britain, America, I'm sure, probably the world of if I'm in, to your point, FaceTime, if we're chatting, it must be productive. Yeah. And and even myself, right? So I've gone from corporate employment to self-employment, running, making mischief. And it has been a massive journey for me to change some of those habits because it's been indoctrined into me almost that this is what you need to do LJ this is what you need to do and this is you have to have lots of meetings and la 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 <laughs> and the reality is that the more I tune into myself the more that I spend time really listening to my own inner wisdom and not kind of going out there to someone else to tell me what's right the more successful I am. And it's not necessarily the old model of success when LJ was in corporate land. And is part of that, actually, to your point around the culture of time is seen as the, you know, the good thing to be doing, giving time, spending time, is part of that a change around the perception of some leaders? Is there to an extent some leaders who think I got here by hard work, therefore, absolutely, you must, you know, it's this sort of university rugby club. Yeah, I'm, I'm the more senior person, you're the more junior. So you must do as I did. Yeah, totally. And, the, and that's a lot of the time when people go and they speak to mentors or whoever it is, or even just to have conversations, they want to know the career path that they took. And I remember actually, I remember, and this is a slight digression, around the fact that when I, when I was in Diageo, something that I really wanted to do was to work more internationally. And I did get that opportunity. But the world is so different these days in, in having that opportunity. And, you know, it was something like four times your salary in the first year of an international assignment, three times 
I mean, it was some, something ridiculous. Sorry, you got paid four times your salary if you went abroad? It was something ridiculous, like, I don't know, what well, package-wise, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I might just, be misquoted on that. But, but still, if, big jump but if you went abroad. If you went abroad. In the older days, in the older days, in my, in my career, that didn't happen, that disappeared, that went away. And so what enabled people to do that and to do those jumps, it wasn't possible for me to do that and also there were two of us with two careers equally of importance and often what you find is that for really senior board level people and I'm generalizing again there was one person who was the the main breadwinner the main career person and whether male or female um, that took precedence and I think now when you look at the millennials coming through and everything like that, there's dual income couples, there's dual income couples and it's not the same. And so we tend to, and it's something that I talk about a lot, which is we tend to take the past into the present and project it into the future, which is very unhelpful because it's not true. And so we need to work out how to have individual unique career progressions and career journeys and, it doesn't have to be done the same way. And we really need to be open to people moving sideways, which I know is done a lot more these days. But even so, we, we need to be more open-minded about what progression is and how to get there. And it's not just about volume. Yeah. And how does, because so I, I think about where I was when I was sort of early 20s and consulting and where I am now. And I, I know that 23, 24-year-old Nick would not have taken a sideways step. Um, but I also think that there are different pressures now. And I don't, you know, I, I turned 30 at the end of last year, so I don't want to start saying back in my day. But <laughs> I, I think there is a, you, you hear a lot about social media. And I think for good and for evil. And I, mm-hmm. I'm interested to exactly that point, because I do want to, you mentioned around your international assignments, and I want to come on to how you and Ollie manage that, because I, I know there are a lot of listeners who will be struggling with that. But actually, how big a challenge does social media play in that career perception of what is success you know to to your point is that causing pressure that prevents people from doing things like taking a sideways move taking a a demotion into going to something else you know anything and everything well it comes it comes back to the point that i mentioned about external validation social media is very much based on external validation and you look at other people and you look at their lives and you look at how successful they are and you look at what they're doing and how they look and how amazing they are. And and there is some of it on social media about actually saying what the truth is behind that. But the vast majority of it is about the number of likes that you get and how you want to be seen to others. And we don't get behind the mess of what real lives are. And the mess of how difficult it sometimes is to make a decision about certain things, even if it's just what you wear to an interview or the fact that you've woken up and you're in a bad mood that day. It, it's just, yeah, it's just based on external validation. And what then happens in that model is we then start to feel shit about who's are we am i allowed to swear by the way you can swear yeah it's, oh, thank you. it's a grown-up we, podcast where okay, are you like good grown-up podcast yeah we then start to feel shit about ourselves and shit about how we're doing and how we're progressing in comparison to someone else and it's that in comparison too that then 
really gets in our way in comparison to everyone that I graduated from uni with. How am I doing? Well, who cares? And that is actually, I think, a really nice point to bring us on to what I guess I'd call the relationship side, because you mentioned and give us your own example from your family or if you prefer, you know, extrapolate it to clients that you've worked with. At the age I am, I have, you know, I have friends of a mix of ages who are sort of in the junior grade consulting and some who are in the senior. And to your point, it doesn't have to be consulting, you know, people yeah. in professions or career in general. And yeah. I find this age, particularly the sort of 30 to 40 bracket, quite an interesting one in that you get a lot of people who, and we'll come on to actually, I'd be interested in your take on how people find partners because I was very lucky I met my wife at university I, I wouldn't have a clue how adults meet each other um, <laughs> I but... think you have to swipe these days <laughs> I never I was I was before I was pre-swipe I have no idea well, how to swipe you were pre-swipe I mean I'm <laughs> I'm older than you <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm sure oh, look we won't go into my into my terrible dating but and this is probably a challenge people have come to you with is what are those tensions that play out when you have let's take let's take yourselves as an example maybe that couples where both of them are keen to pursue careers mm -hmm. and it does you know if it matters bring it in i don't know whether it matters whether you know children or not i suspect these challenges play out whether you do or don't have children but it almost to your point around external validation and this is an assumption i, I left consulting at senior consultant so i didn't get to this point but i can imagine that as you approach a senior grade in any job so same with yourself at diageo that sort of sunk cost fallacy that opportunity cost that look what's coming over the hill all play together. And I'd be really interested how you find those challenges play out for your clients where you have the external validation of I can make partner, I can make global program director, but how people can balance that with supporting their partner to have a healthy relationship at the same time. Yeah. And, and I think it's, so something just to clarify, you can have internal validation about getting to partner as well. It, it's course. kind of like the reason, yeah. what's your driving reason for doing it. And sometimes we lie to ourselves as to what the real reason for that is but yeah in terms of the relationship piece I mean relationships are hard right they're really easy but they're hard as well and anyone who's looking for a relationship or is in a relationship it's tricky and and I guess I guess what's if I talk about myself because otherwise it it just seems to be something out there but if I talk about me and Ollie so we got together, we met at Diageo. This isn't about a love story, by the way. We, we met at Diageo. The relationship that we had when we first met was very different to when he asked me to marry him. It was very different to when we got married. And then it's very different to when you're first married, which is then very different to when you're trying to get pregnant, which is then very different to when you get pregnant, which is then very different to if you stay pregnant which is then very different to when kids come along if they come along which is then very different when kids get older and it's very different when you lose parents and it's very different when you gain a dog <laughs> like there's all sorts of life events that then come in but what we and I'm not a relationship expert by the way so this is just in my experience but we don't necessarily have the messy conversations as I would have it around relationships and whether that's it, a Mr. and Mrs., boyfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, 
we tend to avoid the messy conversations. And just to be to be clear, we meaning the world, we, not we collectively, yeah, yeah, in general, tend to avoid the really messy conversations because they're hard. And we make assumptions about people along the way. And Ollie and I, Ollie and I now talk, and we're we're talking very openly about what is marriage number two going to be, because we've recognised that marriage number one was very different to what marriage two needs to be, and who we are now as people. You know, we've been through masses and masses of challenges along the way, personally, professionally, whatever. Um, and I genuinely think that there'll be a marriage three and a marriage four and a marriage five as we get older. And for me, that's a nice way to look at my marriage. But I wouldn't have done that without doing the work that I've done over the past seven years to really understand, well, actually things have changed. And we don't really stop to think about, well, what is different? What are my needs now? What are your needs now? How have things shifted? Yeah, so I think I think it's more around recognising where you are and having those conversations and what is the support that you need from work, from friends, from family around where you are and that can change drastically along the way. And if I think about organisations in particular, they some of them are really very good when you go off and have babies and they're becoming a lot better about including men in that as well, by the way. But what I do see... And I haven't come across an organisation yet, and I'm really happy to for someone to tell me where they do this really well. The empathy gets less as the kids get older. And what I mean by that is that when the kids go to school, it's almost like, well, you've been a parent for a while now, you ought to get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, that as the kids age, they change and all, di- all sorts of different challenges come up. Mm. And that can feel really hard as well and if you think about where you are in your career and the fact that you're progressing and potentially moving further up the hierarchy at that point you still haven't quite got the kids thing sorted because they're human beings with their own needs and their own challenges that come from that and we need to be more empathetic towards people with their lives and is that because we definitely will come on to the the sort of parental side and and that's a fascinating point actually around now you've shone a light on it I completely get what you mean and I I think unintentionally I've seen play out in in organizations and projects you know someone with a six-month-old you know of course you know the baby's not been sleeping they've got to get off whereas like you say someone with a 16 year old uh, you know they, they can look after themselves is that even more acute at the and it might be as acute but is that does that also play out at the pre-babies? So to your point, you, okay, the six-month-old, six I get that, 16-year-old, fine, it's their football game. But when you're not got either, you know, you're trying to manage a relationship and you're told, well, you should be on this flight to Chicago, let's say, but you've got a CrossFit competition you want to go to. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and so the bit that I think would transform our world is flexible working. And... We have moved further along the lines on that. And I don't know whether you follow Mother Pucker on Instagram. Uh, I don't, but give me the beauty of technology. Give me one minute. Mother Pucker, P-U-K-K-A, and Papa Pucker. They're amazing. And they 
they're campaigning for flexible working and flexible working not just for those people who have babies. It's flexible working for every human being on planet Earth that has a job. And I think that if you are coming out of university and getting a job, really understanding how you want to work and not being constrained by the 8 till 10 p.m. model that some of us actually come out of university and go into (laughs) is really important. And the more we can think that flexible working isn't about part-time working, it's it's just around somebody setting themselves up. And I'm I'm talking about in consultancies here and in big organizations and not those that you have to be physically present for in... I don't know, like a hairdresser, you have to be physically present to cut someone's hair. Yeah, the more that we can bring flexible working in for every single person and have those conversations and for it not to be rigid, because what I do see about flexibility is that it's really rigid. It, yeah. It's like, right, you need to change your contract for that versus let's just have a conversation about this week or I don't need to be 100% flexible this week. And I can be in the office. But next week, there's a couple of things I want to do. I need to go to the dentist and I need to go and get my hair cut. And I don't want to do that at the weekend. And that's outside of just having, you know, even having babies to look after and dogs. And yeah, so the more that we can talk about flexible working and have a really flexible work culture, I think that will help when people then take time out to do something different for a period of time. And it's part of that, and like you say, focusing on the consulting side, is, is part of that about the cons- leaders in our industry actually being willing to have those conversations with clients because other guests have made the point that actually consultants don't need to lo- often be on site. And I think the world is changing, but I think some clients still sort of follow the mantra of if I'm paying for five consultants five days a week, I want to see bums on seats so I know I'm getting my value. Now, I think we've we've talked about why that isn't true, but is there an element that the leaders in our industry need to be sort of stepping up to this? Or what are some of the components that firms, you know, you mentioned no one's doing this well. What can those firms be putting in place to do better? So I definitely think there's an element of value. So what am I going to get? So as a for the client, what are you going to deliver? And without going into the organizational chart and the project plan about how to make that happen, it's more about the tangible results that you're going to get at the end, because that should be the thing that's of value and not the amount of bums that are on seats. Mm, Yeah. And the more you can talk about that and what you will get. And if I take my business, it's all some of it is based around hours that you see me or days that you see me and other parts of it is around well what am I going to deliver as a consequence what is the change that will happen or what will you see and that how long I take to get to that and sometimes it's very labor intensive and you don't get the cost of that but I'm doing it because I really care about it and I'm doing a really good job and I'm learning some new stuff and I'm going to deliver to you something incredible. And other times, I'm going to deliver you something that's incredible and of massive value, and it doesn't take me very long to do at all. Mm. Not to be totally transparent about my business model, but it should be the thing that we deliver and what you get versus 
versus how many people it's taken to build the Mercedes, for example. I mean, you buy a car, you don't go, well, how many people has it taken to build the car? How many robots have you used? How many parts have you used? How long is that going to take? How many hours does it take to put the components together? You buy the car. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point. And I, I, it reminds me of something a, a former guest, um, Stephen Newton, made the point of that the anecdote of the plumber comes around to fix your pipe and it takes him five minutes, but actually you're not paying for the the five minutes of time for him to fix the pipe. You're paying, like you say, you know, the years of experience, knowledge, learning. Totally. So that yeah. he can fix the pipe in five minutes, not, you know, putting your someone who's just picked up a spanner to go figure it out on YouTube for three days and come back with yeah. the answer. So no, exactly. I, 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 and I completely, you know, completely agree. As, uh, like I said to you, I, I've launched a marketing agency for consulting firms. And I think that is, I know in my space, that's a challenge for a lot of firms is it's the value over the, the bum on seat, the bums on seats. And I think helping the industry move that way then allows things like flexible working. Yeah. I want to come back to, and we're saying, tell me if we can't talk about this and we'll move on. But <laughs> something in your story, and the, to the point around relationships and challenges for professional couples where they're both managing uh, senior careers, and you mentioned how you were both doing global travel and you had a conversation to say, we're going to, you know, this isn't working. We're going to change it. And you also made the point that you were the the breadwinner. So you were the one with the larger income out of the two of you, which I think stereotypically, and I, I use this just as a caricature, most people would think the person with the smaller income would make more sense to, to stop if you wanted to do that. As much as you're happy to share, like I say, if you're not, we'll move on. I'd love to understand almost the, the points of what was it that led to that conversation? So what led you to to say this isn't working? What was that conversation? And how did the two of you decide that you would take the step and do something else? So I think it had been a number of conversations along the way anyway. I, I knew that, as I said earlier, that I liked the people side more than the boxes and the wires and the hardware and that kind of stuff. And not to talk badly of anyone who was managing me at the time, but I think I think people were quite confused as to what do we do with someone who likes people and works in IT? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you want to go into HR? And I'm like, no, I, no, I, I don't want to go into HR. That You know, you need good managers of people and good leaders of people, regardless of the channel or team or whatever that you're in. And so it was kind of like, what is the next move for me? And that that was quite confusing at that time because because as I said earlier I've I've always been almost this this person in the middle who could do lots of things there wasn't one job that was really obvious because I could have done a number of jobs I'd worked in service delivery I'd worked in project management and I'd worked in the technical side of stuff not deeply deeply technical but it was it was semi-technical and so I could have gone into three or four or five different roles there wasn't one immediately obvious job and so whenever anyone always said to me, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Kind of like, what's the next role? I couldn't ever answer it. It was always, well, I'd like the job to have these components. The job title, I don't care. So I think that because there wasn't an immediate next step, apart from the fact that I still wanted to do well, that was playing on my mind. I also couldn't see a way out at that time of the hours. So... 
I couldn't see a way out of being asked to do long hours and still being able to do a great job and still being able to get promoted. I had a very strong belief that that wasn't going to happen because I couldn't see anyone else in my situation who had had babies, who was a young mother, progressing up and having a balanced life. And balance has balance had always been really important to me. I mean, even even when you take my sport, unless I had a call with Asia Pack, which was irregular, I would never take a meeting before eight thirty in the morning because I'd be in the gym. And that was kind of just one of my boundaries that I knew I was a better employee by having had physical exercise first thing in the morning. So yeah, so I think with Ollie and I, I had the idea. He had also had a year out when we got married to write a book. Oh, very so, cool. What was the book? Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't ever published, but um, I know it's, it's still on his to-do list. But he'd taken a year out to write a book, and he had also had quite a varied career. I mean, he ran a restaurant when he first graduated before moving into an IT career and stuff like that. And so, And I'd never tried anything different. And then what really helped with the decision was I got offered redundancy. And and I was an easy person to really get rid of because I was quite happy to do so. I'd been there a number of years and I wasn't in a role and they'd had a big reorg before. Literally the day I went on maternity leave, I got told what role I was coming back to. And at the time... The conversation went, so you're going to be back in three months, right? And I was like, no, 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 I'm taking longer than that off. And you could almost just hear the, oh, my goodness, how is that? That's just not okay. So, yeah, I think I think the stars just aligned that I thought, well, I've got something that I'm really passionate about and I want to try and do something different and make an impact in a different way. And let's give it a go. It was almost let's give it a go. And and so far, it's been a huge challenge, I have to say, but I'm happy that I've done so. Yeah, completely. Because it's not, it's not easy. Yeah. It's very rewarding and it's not easy. And I'm sure there's some people listening to this. This isn't me saying it, but it's I try when I do this to imagine what the different views will be. And some people will be listening to that and almost thinking if they're in a similar position where two very full-on careers, some people might think, well, okay, the decision was made for you, redundancy, and you know, you wanted to do your own thing. Fantastic. I know people who are almost I, I and this is just my guess, I think redundancy would be an amazing thing for because they could take that reset time. But for those, and I'm sure you've got clients in this space, and then I want to come on to that three months off and the challenges of maternity, paternity leave, et cetera. For those people in relationships where that isn't something that is presenting itself, and maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they've been told, you know, keep doing this, keep, you know, keep running as hard as you are and you'll make whatever it is in whatever period of time. Are there any red flags that you pick up from your clients or maybe you watch them, you get them to watch out for when it comes to that sort of relationship career balance? Is there, you know, telltale signs that mean people should be having the conversations, you know, doing what I think I, I mean, I've inferred from what you're saying of having that conversation of what's marriage one, what's marriage two? Are there any of those warning signs? If so, what are they? I'd say that's it's very individual. It's not an easy one to answer 
yes, I believe there will always be warning signs. And it's how conscious you are to those and how willing you are to go into what I would call the shadow and how willing you are to explore things that get messy and can be uncomfortable and and can be really scary. I think the warning signs come with everything that you think about in terms of well-being. Are people looking after themselves? Are people you can you can generally sense if you're in tune with people and friends and work colleagues if someone's not themselves. And sometimes when we're in that whole time-based relentless model we don't have time to stop and ask someone if they're okay or if they could do with a chat or how are they really and also when it comes to women in particular there is such a big bias against showing emotion and in men there's equally in a different way a bias against showing emotion so women it's about not getting too emotional and men, it's about not showing emotion because you're meant to be hard and you're, you know, you're not meant to be vulnerable and soft and talk about things because you're meant to have everything yeah. under control and we're we're okay, stiff upper lip brits and things like that. So I think there's just this this belief that I do have that there are warning signs. And often we choose to ignore them. And with anything, I have a deep belief that if you ignore it for long enough, it shows up in your body. I really like that. And I, knowing the times I've burnt out for various reasons, I think it's absolutely true. And I think and it does, you know, it's as much time as anything else. But like you say, the it does show up in that way. So no, really, I really, I think I know what it is, but just because I I want to share it. The shadow, when you say the shadow, that is the, the parts of your self, your relationship, whatever it may be, that are difficult, uncomfortable, and you don't want to go to. Is that right? Yeah, so if you imagine an iceberg, a class, you've probably seen the classic iceberg model where only 5 to 10% at the top is seen, yeah. that's our conscious self. 90 to 95% of ourselves is in the unconscious and is unseen, but 90 to 95% of the unconscious drives our behaviour. So we think we know ourselves really well consciously, but actually it's around diving deep into those parts that we reject in ourselves, the parts that we don't see in ourselves, the parts that um, we over-identify with. It's deep self-awareness. It's deep, deep self-awareness. And I think if that's the one thing that my journey from Diageo to now has been about, it's deep self-awareness and I'm still peeling back the layers of the onion and what I do know to be true is that what we think is the darkness and the shadow and the scary stuff it's in those places that the magic is found it's in those places that the treasure is found it's in those places where you suddenly go oh my goodness that's free that's freedom for me that's freedom from this thought that I've had for 31 or 41 years as I am now yeah it's deep self-awareness and, and that's the key to the whole subject area around what holds women back and maternity, paternity. It, it really is a deep self-awareness of our own patterns, our own beliefs, our own behaviours, and looking at the external world and seeing what's out there that gets in the way as well. It's interesting the point you make there because it just makes me think actually, and I, 
I think purely about the consultants I know and when I was in consulting is I think there's a lot of training in the industry on how to deal with people. I think every consultancy probably you've ever worked with has a, you know, dealing with difficult stakeholders, stakeholder engagement training, whatever you might call it. But actually, I don't know anyone and I'm sure there are some, so I don't want to say everyone, but I, I know many, I don't know any who have a sort of introspection course or training exactly like you say and never you know I know from sort of doing a lot of that myself focusing on peeling the onion as well it's a really powerful thing and the shift particularly from that external to internal I think that's something that doesn't get as much focus external validation to internal yeah Um, I want to come on to though and I know it's a it's the area that led to our introduction. So I do want us to spend a, a, you know, a decent chunk of... Before we move on, can I just make one point, though? Before we move on, so you, you make a really, really valuable point, and it, it's something that I'm really passionate about, which is when we talk about connection with others and we talk about stakeholder relationship and stakeholder management and dealing with people, we can only connect with others as much as we're connected with ourselves. So the more we can be connected to ourselves and the more that we can be connected to our truth and the more that we can be connected to knowing our true selves, the more we will get connection with others. And that's missed. It's like build a connection. Well, actually, the first place to start is to build a connection with yourself. Let's let's pick on from this thing because it's an area of interest of mine. And I, <laughs> So this is something that I think is a really interesting area. And to your point, because I, I know through this conversation, through through what I understand about you and what I've heard, you're hugely passionate about people being accepted for who they are and certain things being, you know, people being more accepting of challenges and diversity in general, just to use a simple word. But actually, there's a really interesting thing that I think what you've just highlighted, to me at least, and these, you know, I, I this is my sample of one, but I see you've got a bookshelf behind you. And I also see, and it's a love for those, it's an audio podcast that people can't see. It's color coordinated. And I really like that as a way to display books. Just it, there's something in me that I like like patterns. Um, (laughs) I I am, but well, I I would, but I'm afraid my entire, my, and I'll come on to my self-help or self-improvement library is all on my Kindle or on my audio audible. I know you can't, you can't, but you can't, you can't, um, you can't do that the same. And I, Again, I have friends who are the same, and I, I will. Sh- they will probably do that after this. The point, the point for me is almost. It feels like to cert- a certain respect, there are acceptable diversities, let's say, but un- certain ones that are unacceptable. Now, I pick up unacceptable may be too strong, but I pick up on this point: is you mentioned and you've highlighted yourself about finding the power of peeling the onion, and I know from a number of guests whether they've said it explicitly or implicitly, that is obviously something they've done. In effect, and you know, to use a Tim Ferriss-ism, to design their life. They've said, right, I want to do this. I understand the pros and cons, and that's, that's where I'm going. But I almost think that in professional society, there's still a bit of a stigma around the self-improvement genre. So I call it self-improvement as opposed to self-help. I think self-help has negative connotations. And I think it's moving, but I, I think it's, it's a bit like music in that, the pop books, the pop music's acceptable, but a lot of the less known and often better books, um, albeit just from my my short reading list, it's almost, you wouldn't say to someone, oh, I'm reading this book. Now, I think it's getting better, but I think there's still a challenge in that. I don't know what your take is on that. Well, well, the world that I live in now, it, it's, it's full of kind of that, really, because 
as so coaching is one element of what I do and to be a good coach I think you need to have been coached and I think you need to have explored your own patterns and your own beliefs and you can only go you can only take a client so far as you've been yourself is my belief that's not necessarily true and and I don't mean that literally I just mean that in I don't know kind of like a more softer sense and and that means that when I have conversations with people, a lot of times we don't talk about work. A, a lot, in fact, ninety nine percent of the time, it's about them, and and they've never, I say never. A lot of them have never actually taken the time to really think about what is it that I want, who who am I, and it's really liberating, and it can feel really scary, so. I, I do think there's a lot more books out there that people are happy to be seen reading. And I think there's a lot of books out there that um, people will recommend. But I'm with you that in Britain in particular, there's still kind of like this, oh, um, I can't be seen to be doing that. And there's a bit of a stigma about therapy. There's a massive sti- stigma about mental health. There's a massive stigma around exploring any of that side. In the US, like it, it's really common to have therapy. But people think therapy is because there's a problem versus just going and talking to someone and being heard and being listened to with no well, I, I say with no judgment, being non-judgmental is important as a coach and a therapist, but we naturally judge. I think it's it, it's one of the most ludicrous things about a coach is non-judgmental. No, as a coach, you need to know when you're judging and we judge all the time. And that's why bias and stereotyping continues to be pervasive because we judge. It's part of our natural wiring to do that. And yeah, I th- I think we're moving further towards knowing ourselves a bit better. But at the same time, I see a massive polarity in those that become more connected and those who become more disconnected. And I think the world at the moment is showing us the polarities in, in a massive way. And there's a lot of people, and not to be too woo-woo, there's a lot of people who are awakening to that and there's a lot of people who are scared about that. And are supporting the the darker side of humanity but what I believe to be true is that in that the lighter side will come out as well so maybe that's a bit too deep <laughs> and we move that no no it's, it's it's I think it's it's interesting and my goal with this show is to get different perspectives and get different people's takes and I know when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned you you, you put Tim Ferriss in yeah. the woo-woo box, so yeah. hey, I'm as woo-woo as you, well, if that's I the case. Well, I can do more woo-woo than Tim Ferriss. <laughs> um, well, and, well, and, and I, I mean, firstly, one of the questions later will be about your reading list, and any reading list you want to send would be amazing. And maybe on that point is, because I, I do think that is one of the challenges. When I speak to people, there are people, so I, I'm an avid reader of books, lots of and you know, I've read all of the, the big self-help books, lots of others. And I, there's some people who I speak to who, like me, just sort of start to binge on them. And there's some who just, there's a middle, obviously, but at the other end, there are people who are like, yeah, I don't, I don't buy this. I don't get that. I'd be interested because I'm sure you have had clients like this. Uh, and I'm sure there's people listening like this is for people who are 
you know, listen to you say woo-woo and just tune out. What are what are the book or books that maybe you you sort of, you know, tease them in with? What's the one that you say, look, you you probably get on with this. And I'd recommend that as, you know, if you're want you're on the fence or you want to try it, read these books to start to help you with that self-awareness, that, you know, introspection. So the one person who I would recommend every single time and she's just written a leadership book as well. Well, she's written a number of leadership books. Is Brené Brown. So Brené Brown, Gifts of Imperfection, yeah. Dare to Lead. I'm reading Dare to Lead at the moment. Rising Strong, Daring Greatly. I've read them all. She's incredible, and she's got the best TED. She's got one of the biggest hitting TED talks out there. She researches shame and vulnerability, which is a very unattractive subject to talk about. But she distills these really important messages down into something that is quite actionable and helps us to think in different ways and really helps to shine a light on some of that stuff and it's not really woo-woo but it is about understanding yourself better and when I say woo-woo it's really just about understanding yourself better and there's different ways to do that you can get yourself a coach you can read some books or you can go through some really really different types of approaches and and even stuff like breathing and breathing techniques and breath work, you think isn't going to do much, but can be totally transformational to stress and anxiety and all sorts of things. So, yeah, so if I was to recommend starting with anyone, it's Brené Brown. And she does so much stuff in organizations around leadership that she is acceptable if... <laughs> <laughs> No, and and she's a really so I've I've heard her on podcasts. I I haven't I, I I have heard of her TED talk, and her book was actually recommended to me by the managing partner of a consulting firm that I know, who gave it to his entire leadership team and said everyone must read this. So I figured, if he said it's good, I'll give it a read. The gifts of imperfection is amazing, and and it's basically permission not to be perfect because no one is perfect, and what is perfect, and it's around. Actually, let's show up in our in the most human way we possibly can, and that can be quite messy at times because we're not all perfect, and we've all got upbringings, and we've all got hurts, and we've all got traumas, and we've all got fears, and and we package them away, and we armor ourselves up. And as soon as you put armor in place, that's disconnecting, and that stops you forming a genuine human connection with someone else. So for her, it's around kind of like how can you show up in the arena and be vulnerable. I think that is worth the podcast alone, that piece. And I think um, <laughs> I think talks to a lot of the points you've made throughout, actually, of what is it that causes these tensions and, and that feeling of needing to be perfect? Because I think, and it's something that I've, I have made a joke with, with previous guests, more around consulting work. But I think to exactly that point, I think they're one of the big dangers in our industry, it feels, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm talking nonsense, but that strive for perfection, you know, whether it's in oh, totally. the client work and the boxes on your slide have to be perfect or in your meeting, whatever it is, that perpetuates that cycle. And like you say, with you know, Brene's work and, and what you're saying of actually, if you allow yourself not to be perfect and embrace yourself, suddenly it's that, that weight lifted, that armor coming off. Um, I've just got to the chapter on armor, by the way. So Yeah, and, it, and it's, a, it's not that it's not an issue for men. It absolutely is an issue for men. But it's a particular issue for women because we are told categorically in, in society, we have to act perfect, be perfect. And you have to be perfect and you have to fix yourself 
because you are the problem to be fixed and you can fix yourself with eyelashes or nails or whatever it would be. And especially when it comes to having babies and being a mother, there's then this expectation of being a perfect mother and your body recovering because Kim Kardashian got back into, you know, the well I'm I'm obviously wrong I'm obviously broken because I'm not losing the baby weight within three seconds of having a baby and hang on I'm finding this really hard all of these pictures on social media of these wonderful babies and these wonderful situations and these perfect mothers and and I'm broken and and that and that's the bit that the more that we can talk about our how tough life can be at times and how brilliant and wonderful and perfect life can be at times as well the more we can have really real conversations and the more we can support people when they're in their hard moments. Why don't we turn to to that point around parenthood? Because you, know, you mentioned a few things and I did want to come back to, and I think what you were just saying sort of indicates this, what your colleague said to you, oh, you'll be back in three months. You know, you'll, you've had the baby, you'll have done your Kim Kardashian and you'll be back in, you know, back in the office. I'd be really interested, what is that journey that mothers go on through that pregnancy into having children and then what are those challenges because I know you started our conversation with talking about how that was the turning point for you what are those challenges that they face when coming back to the world and and stepping back onto the treadmill if you like let me just kind of like this isn't a plug but my maternity and paternity coaching program is called back to work without a bump and there's five phases and this might help to explain some of it so the first phase is grow well which is you've announced that you're pregnant because we often don't have the conversation before 12 weeks, which is another really important topic that we can dive into. But grow well is how do I grow my baby and how do I grow my leadership and how do I grow my career in this time? Because a lot of people think that women want to take their foot off the pedal at that stage, that they're obviously going to go off so they're not as committed in their careers. And for me, that phase is actually... I am growing, I need to look after myself, and at the same time, I can still grow my career. Then leave well is around how do you leave the organisation happy, healthy and performing. Keep well in the middle is when they're off. And that really is around, you've had the baby, there's all sorts of things that can come up at that stage. It's not necessarily me, but it is around recognising what do I need to do to keep well whilst I'm off. And there's the sleepless nights, there's... The fact that I'm learning something new, I've never had a baby, I don't know, there is no manual, haven't got a clue, someone else's baby is sleeping through the night, mine's not, what am I doing wrong, la la la, all of the mentalness, the, not mentalness, but the mental chatter that goes along with some of this stuff. And then there's return well, which is how do I return back into the organisation, happy, healthy and performing, and then finally there's stay well which is how do I stay well in the organisation, happy, healthy and performing. And stay well, for me, lasts forever because you're going to be a parent forever. And I think there's there's challenges at each of those stages depending on who you are. There's a big, there's a big element of control. So we like to control as a species. We, we think that the more that we can, can control, the more we control the outcome. But actually, that's not true. It just kind of like sends ourselves into a bit of a spin so the more that we can trust actually the less we need to control the more that we can trust the process the more that we can trust ourselves the less you need to put in these kind of controlling behaviors and controlling dynamics around that yeah and I think that there's 
all sorts of different things that come up and it's not that there's one thing in particular that's common for everyone. Sleep deprivation is a big one for all parents. But I, th- I think what I fundamentally believe is that it's a great leadership opportunity because it forces you to make different choices about how you're going to spend your time and what you're going to focus on and how you're going to show up as a parent, as a partner, as a consultant, as a partner in a consultancy and not just kind of like in your relationship. And there's, there's lots that's going on. And as a woman, your body changes so much from the start to the end of that. And you have a you have a new identity that comes in that changes all of that as well, which is, again is a great opportunity, but also it can really limit us because we have certain beliefs around that. So a convoluted answer, it's not straightforward, but I, I, think, I just think there's, you can support someone through those different phases internally within the organisation and externally too. There's some things that have jumped to my mind that I want to pick up on on that specific piece. One thing that I wonder if there is, and it's I guess consistent to all of these areas, these five parts, as you say, and it's also fairly unique to management consulting in the typical sense, is is traveling. And yeah. you, know, you obviously had a, a global role with a lot of travel, as did Ollie. And I always wonder, does you know, if it doesn't, or it's good to know, but I does that add an extra challenge to each of these phases? Does it hit any in particular? And actually, how do what are the challenges parents face and how should they be thinking about managing them to be able to balance what is a a travel-driven career, potentially, it's an assumption, with a family you know, and a young family, growing baby um, and everything that comes with it? So in one word, boundaries is the yeah. way to deal with all of those and they will change. So setting boundaries is a life skill regardless and having really clear boundaries in place through each of those phases is crucial and and just in general actually but the travel piece does present an issue for everybody but if you were to take the maternity and paternity piece in particular like even before you get to the point that you're pregnant there's the trying to get pregnant bit sometimes people are really successful and you know first time they they're successful. It doesn't happen for a lot of us that way. Um, but then it, that stage can present loads of issues. So if you're traveling and you know that you want to have kids, but there's limited opportunity for bonking, then um, that's going to present its own issues and its own challenges. And how you get around that, you have to decide between yourselves as to what's going to happen. Um, and then when you get pregnant, obviously there's the the whole staying pregnant or not really wanting to talk about it. And yet you know that you are pregnant and the miscarriages that potentially happen, IVF, if people are using IVF to get pregnant, again, that's challenging. Um, if you're injecting yourself with hormones, that's challenging. All sorts of things go on in that phase that you then lay travel on top of that and your partner not being around to support you or you being abroad and something happening all of that can be incredibly stressful and stress isn't necessarily useful when you're wanting to have a baby or if you are pregnant 
And from the person who's not pregnant and supporting their partner, again, it's a stress for them as well. Or it can be a stress. It's not always a stress. So I think it's a tricky one because we don't talk about some of this stuff. And also when, I mean, I remember when, when we were trying to get pregnant and it took us a while to get pregnant and you don't really want to talk about it because then they'll know that you're trying to get pregnant and and then all of the other biases will come in around, oh my goodness, well, let's not put her on a project because she'll be up the duff soon and she'll be out of here. So there's lots of things that get in the way and so people don't talk about it. But it's a reality of life. And I think we need to be a lot more open around that. And then when you are pregnant, obviously, you can have a really healthy pregnancy, or sometimes things may not go to plan. um, And you might not have the pregnancy that you want. And again, that's stressful. And there's no easy answer for this. But I we need the world we need women to continue to have babies or there will not be a succession pipeline for any consultancy in the future so we need it to happen and the more that we can make it less of an issue the better it will be and and things like shared parental leave and parental leave is definitely helping but not enough men are taking that opportunity up for it to make a massive difference at this point in time it is making a difference and changes happening but it's not in the volume that is required for the conversation to be okay right so as a partnership and as a couple you're pregnant we're we're making as many contingency plans for the man as we are for the woman or for the woman and the woman or the man and the man whatever you know whatever the 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 couple's gender identities are and genders are, then um, we need to make it more inclusive. And the more we make it an issue, the more it is an issue. And maybe it is, like you say, it's it's thinking about it from both sides or both the... I'm going to use man and woman simply because it's going to be easier for conversation. Thinking about both the man and woman. Is it that consulting firms should be should be having those conversations about how can we, you know, it's almost changing the question, isn't it? It's starting at, you have two people, not one. How do we support them through a journey? Because one, one curiosity, because I know, and the person who introduced me um, or introduced us was a, was a man. So I know you do both sides. I, I'm interested as well in, and I, I'm not a parent yet. Um, we, we would like to have children if we can, but uh, frankly, this no sleep thing scares the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> I can't do without eight, without my eight hours. So you you would be amazed how little sleep you can get away with. Amazed. P- friends who are parents tell me stories like this, uh, and then they tell me that it's really rewarding. I, I we will get there, I'm sure. But right now, I, I couldn't deal without eight hours. So tonight, I'm going to get to bed. And anyway, um, <laughs> but I think the the question I. I would be curious on um, is, and I I don't know this, I've never been in a position, but is there almost for men a, a different set of challenges in so much as it's pretty overt that a woman is pregnant and it's pretty overt, you know, you mentioned that some pregnancies could be hard and, you know, morning sickness and things. So actually there are physical symptoms. What challenges do men face in this respect and how should their managers, be it male, female or other be watching out for these to make sure that the 
the non-childbearing partner is, is equally well catered for. Because it's almost, they have, you could say, some of the same pressures without it being seen. Because on project, they're them. So if we take babies out of it, and this might be a bit contentious, but if you were dealing with a couple where one has cancer, how would you approach the conversation with both of them? And how would you support both of them? I think we get very sidetracked by the baby thing versus the human thing. You know, people have challenges. People have to deal with grief and loss and all sorts of things. And it might be, who knows what it would be, but how do we support that human being sitting in front of us who has the challenges that they are going through? And whether it's them that is physically bearing that challenge or whether they are supporting someone who's physically bearing a challenge, it doesn't really make a difference. It's still that human being sitting in front of us. So how can we support them? And the more we support them and the more we have those conversations, I genuinely believe the less mental health issues there be, the more, the deeper the connection people will have, the more loyalty they will have towards the company because they will genuinely feel that they're cared about. And yeah, and it's around supporting that human being in front of you and and just recognising that there's more to them than work. They have an entire life around them that is very important. And on your deathbed, it's that life that is genuinely the one that people talk about and not necessarily, you know, the job that they had at 27. So yeah, I think if we if we if we just change the context and think about it from that point of view, it doesn't matter whether it's pregnancy or babies or the death of a loved one or the fact that your dog's been put down, which can be like, you know, a, a massive a massive loss to people and or that they're feeling low because they have grief to process that they haven't done in the 12 seconds that we think people need to get over things these days because grief is a it's a long process that we go through that comes up at all sorts of different times so again I I haven't really answered your question but it's more around looking at the human being in front of you and seeing how you can support them and what they're going through in the way that is best for them And what we tend to do is we tend to project our opinion on people going, well, I know exactly how you feel. Well, no, you don't. I've been through other life experiences and I can tell you how I felt about something that's similar, but I have no idea how you feel. What do you need? What is your unique perspective? What is your unique set of requirements and your unique set of needs through this? And let's talk about it. And I know you said you didn't answer it, but I think think you've you have answered and you've answered it in a a really thought-provoking way or that has made me think actually to your point throughout around it's about people and it's about understanding unique circumstances and actually having structures in place that while not you know being chaos enable an organization a consulting firm in this instance to to be responsive to people and I almost wonder to that point is there in in our and I'll take it to the world today, is there almost too much focus on fixing exactly that problem through policy? And so what I mean by that is you go on LinkedIn and I think a day doesn't go past where I hear about a new policy. Someone's got a paternity, maternity, this policy, that policy. And almost to your point, is there a danger that organizations 
in some instances, not saying all, pick policy as the easy route out because it's predefined out of actually what is more of a conversation about how can we make this the best place for our people to be and thrive? Mm. So policy is great. And I think policy can be best practice for the norm, if there ever is a norm, because there isn't really a norm. But it's more of a guideline, right? Because we don't necessarily know what best practice is to do certain things until we come across something like that. So I think policy is fantastic and used as a guideline versus being extremely rigid about it and I think when we become rigid we then aren't very helpful because we expect people to perform and respond in a set way and people are individuals and they respond in the way that's unique to them and we need to follow policy but loosely hold an option in your other hand that potentially isn't following policy at all and and that is a bit of maverick and I can I can see loads of HR people going no but no we have to have policy because of risk and because of compliance and because of doing the right thing I get it right because it's it's great it's really fantastic and yet at the same time it's really limiting and can be quite harmful. Mm. Well, and is it, I guess, then about, to that point, for people who are running consulting firms, is it more about the conversation, the question you're asking, what, what are you trying to solve as opposed to the, the output? So, and I think that's where my, my question or concern of the policy side comes in, is I think I get the feeling some organisations go, well, they have a you know, shared parental leave policy, so I must have a shared parental leave policy to be competitive. And actually, is it about... Should the question be how, you know, should it be the question that they focus on of how do we make this the best place as opposed to the outcome? Yeah. So let, let me give you an example. So when my first was born, so he was due, he was born at the end of March. In February, we found out that Ollie's dad had lung cancer and Ollie's dad died on, I think it was the 23rd of April. So very, very quickly from lung cancer. And so we, had a brand new baby and we had to go up to Scotland and we lived in all sorts of different places whilst that was going on and for a new mum and a new baby and a new dad that was a big deal because getting out of the house can be quite tricky in the first few weeks of having a baby and at the same time Ollie's going through this big thing because his dad's dying and it's horrendous and Ollie gets a two weeks of parental leave. And when his dad was poorly, the policy in his company around that was very strict. His manager at the time, knowing what he was going through, just basically said, Ollie, do what you need to do. Go where you need to go. I'm just going to support you. Just let me know what you need. And so the pressure of not having to say, well, I'm going to show up in the office in two weeks' time. I can be in Scotland. I can see the end of my dad's life and deal with that. And I can support my wife and my new child at the same time. Made him so loyal and made him so grateful to his manager. And that was not policy. It was so not policy. But was it the right thing to do for him at the time? Absolutely. Is that manager now one of his really great friends who he's incredibly loyal to absolutely and that and that for me is the real point of sometimes we have to do things that aren't policy 
because you get payback in so many different ways with such extreme value by doing the right thing for that human being sitting in front of you at the time. Yeah, no, really, actually, really powerful story and really puts that point into perspective, like you say. So one last question, because I'm conscious how much time of yours I've taken up, and I promised I'd only I'd only take a small part of your evening tonight. And it's I want to just bring us back to, because I think it, it ties off this journey quite nicely on what you just, on a point you made earlier around the around the different ages of children, because like you've highlighted, you know, the baby's born and you know, hopefully that isn't the last phase of that that journey. Um, and then people become less accommodating of their children. Oh, sorry, their colleagues become less accommodating of them having children. And I know it's something that um, people, I've, I've read a number of books by people who a big regret is not spending long enough with their children, focusing on work, let's say. And now some people, that's a decision they've made. For some, I imagine there is a pressure around work and around the perception or feeling of work. How, what are those unique challenges that people face? Uh, and I appreciate I'm giving you a, a, a question for one when I know that there's so many challenges, but what are those common challenges that people face as their children grow up and how can they approach that career in consulting to achieve the professional success they might want while ensuring they have the relationship they want with their children and an understanding from their colleagues and, and partners to be able to do that? So the two things I'll go back to that I've mentioned before, flexibility and boundaries. So having really great boundaries that change as and when they are required to change and having conversations about the flexibility that you need throughout your entire career. So the more that we can talk about flexible working and what you need to support your life, the better. And and it's not a permanent contract change. These things are, as things come up, so as kids are sick and someone needs to take a day off of work to look after them, holidays are an absolute nightmare to plan around it's also really expensive to get childcare. Um, you often have one person taking one week off another person taking another week off and not actually having time together as a family apart from one two-week holiday there's also the element of how kids need to be supported through school with homework and what the school expects of parents to be doing outside of the school hours the challenges of their friendships and exam pressures and mental health issues and if your kid has got any special educational needs that also need to be taken into consideration i mean there's so many things that that can happen and there is no there is no right way of saying this is how it is for parents because it's so unique it's so unique and and one of the things that I talk about a lot, actually, and I haven't mentioned it, is around we have this thing, especially in kind of women in leadership. So a lot of the stuff that I do, as you've mentioned, is around how to get women to the top. And the maternity paternity piece is one part of that. But one of the things that I believe will help everybody in this is around what I call real models. So we talk a lot about how can you role model so role modeling obviously is all oh, this is this is the how to be the perfect leader and and it's all lovely whereas real models for me really embrace the Brené Brown approach of they're imperfect they show up they speak the truth if they're having a hard time they say actually I'm really struggling at the moment 
and they don't have that it's not about oversharing or it's just around I need to change my work pattern because I've got something going on at home at the moment and so this is what I'm dealing with versus pretending that everything's okay and pretending that I have to do this and I have to work all of the hours and all that happens is we break we break and so it comes back to the individual conversations how do you support the human being in front of you how do you talk about flexibility in a way that is really accommodating in the moment and doesn't necessarily need to result in a contract change like you say it's things the the consistent themes that have come out tonight around the boundaries around being i really like real models by the way i think that's uh, i think for anyone listening i think that's a really nice way of presenting it and i know to your point brené brown talks a lot about in effect being that real model um and yeah. and sharing without oversharing which i think is also something that a lot of people sometimes confuse potentially some of those points with you know do i have to tell everyone that today was awful no so, no no and actually that balance of of sharing what you feel what is right for the situation or you feel you should and can versus just sharing everything um yeah. but but i think that's a really nice i think it caps off the points before about just understanding understanding the individual and responding to them this is the first time i've ever done this but i think it's such an important topic and to your point around what you were just saying that it's worth us covering and i'll just put it back into the show and that is you know, for, for everyone listening, we we were just we just sort of came off air. And one of the points I highlighted was around, I am a white man. And it does seem in certain circles, in certain areas that there is almost I, I, a discrimination the other way in that I've seen people post on LinkedIn, let's say that I want a panel with I don't want an all male panel, or I won't speak on a male panel, or I've been told informally by people we'd prefer a woman speaker because it's perceived as more diverse and I I just wanted to for for the listeners benefits because I really like what you were saying about about it, is to get your perspective on that on actually what are what are the challenges around that and how 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 do companies or people need to be mindful about it to make sure they're not positive i guess positive discrimination but overly positively discriminating you may have a better phrase for it so i talk about exclusion and inclusion and what we need to be careful about is that we don't trade in one bad model for another bad model and how can we be inclusive of everybody regardless of the labels that they have and that includes white man now as i was saying to you when we went off air when I go in to companies, and I do get this a lot, I would say that the most dangerous person that I meet is the white man who says that he can't be sexist because he's got women on his team and he's got daughters. Because that means that that person isn't open to understanding how they are biased and how they are sexist. And where I start the conversation is that we are all sexist and women included. So how do we work out how we are sexist and how do we get really curious about understanding how we do discriminate? Because that, if we go back to part of our conversation earlier, is about the shadow. And if we keep it in the shadow, it stays in the shadow versus having the really great conversation to say, well, actually, if we bring that into the light and we understand 
how we are biased and how we do discriminate, then that goes or that takes us a lot further forward in the conversation about how how we become more inclusive in general. And I think we need to be careful of making sure that we choose a panel, for example, and when we choose a panel that we're really open about why we chose a panel. So, for example, you could have seven white men on that panel, but you could have a man with a disability, you could have a man who's gay, you could have a man who has had not a classic education and has has had class discrimination, for example. There's there's all sorts of things that we lose when we simply look at the very straightforward label of white man. And at the same time as woman, and at the same time as brown, and at the same time as black, and as at the same time as disabled or able-bodied. And so for me, when I talk about labels, when I talk about losing lab- losing the labels, it's around getting curious about what are all of our beliefs and prejudices and thoughts about that label and how can we be more accepting and inclusive of all human beings regardless of their labels. So, and I think that's a brilliant message to to leave people with, which is why we we're we're doing this post interview. And I want to also, as a last piece, actually get the advice you were giving to me, which I would summarise. And apologies because I'm going to do exactly what you just said not to of use labels of the advice for the white men. In that, I think sometimes because of everything you've just highlighted, those who are in the perceived to be non discriminated group. I think there's sometimes a tension of you don't want to, you don't feel, I'll speak to myself about myself personally, I don't feel it's as easy to have a seat at the table because you are the group that is deemed to be the highest out of whatever ranking people create. And actually your advice will how that people in that group who want to make a positive impact in this conversation can do so in a way that is positive, is respectful, and is received well by others. So everyone has their story, right? Everyone has their story of hardships and struggles. And I think this is the the bit, which is this is not to deny that people haven't had a hard lives, haven't had struggles and haven't had trauma in how they've got to a position. The thing about white men is that the system favours you. So you haven't less... So if someone else with different labels had been through the same traumas, the same experiences and the the same life they would have experienced it in a different way because the system favours you. And that's the only point, which is be open to the fact that even though you've had struggles and hardships and traumas and things like that, be open to the fact as to how the system has favoured you and how you can be an advocate and an ally for ensuring that the system doesn't necessarily need to favour you because of your labels and how to change the system to make labels irrelevant and to make sure that the real talent gets to the top regardless of their labels so i did promise i wouldn't take much more of your time so i do only have two more questions Lindsay. okay and the first one is about books and i know we've covered a little bit around some books you know brene brown for instance who i know it, it seems like it's been a big influence and you know, you've talked a lot about her work this is and it might be that's the answer but this is a chance to add any more in talk about any others on that amazing bookshelf i can see well as, as you can see there's a whole bookshelf behind me so i can list them for you but I've, there are some. So if I think about, so the first book that I 
have read that has had a really lovely impact on me is not very complicated at all, but it's formed such a huge part of my life. And it's called The Path of a Doer. And it's by David Hyatt and Andy Smith. And so David used to run Howie's, the clothes brand, and he now runs Hyatt Denim. He runs the Do Lectures. And I've been to the Do Lectures. It's amazing. If you ever get an opportunity to go, the Do Lectures is incredible. And it's a very, very tiny book. And it's amazing just to flip through. It's got lots of nice little pictures. There's probably about 100 words in the whole book, but it's genius. In fact, Nick, if you send me your address, I'll post you oh, a copy. It's my gift to you. you. I will do, because um, I've my not heard of it. I love, I love getting books I've not heard of. So, And it won't be on your Kindle. <laughs> You're going to have a hard book to have I do. I like hard books, um, but just Kindle was easier <laughs> when I was in London. But continue, continue. So the other, the other topic that I talk a lot about is around bias and stereotyping, in particular around gender. And there's a great book by Binna and Joe Candola called The Invention of Difference. So if you are interested about gender differences, that is a great intro to the subject area and really helps to tackle some of the beliefs that we have around the issue. For women in particular, although not exclusively to women, there is a book by Clarissa Pincola Estes called Women Who Run With The Wolves. and we haven't gone into it in on this call, but there's a massive amount of what I do, which is around masculine and feminine. And we can talk a lot more about that another time. But it's a it has a massive influence on male and female leadership in particular, but in terms of who we are as well as human beings. And then the final one, the final one I got for Christmas this year. And I never, ever used to read poetry ever, but I've got into a bit of poetry over the past few years. And I have this book right in front of me, actually, and it's called it's called Fierce Fairy Tales and Other Stories to Stir Your Soul. And it's by a lady called Nikita Gill. And it comes back to the the stories that we're told and how we absorb them as truth as children. And she basically writes a very different version of all the classic fairy tales like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Sleeping Beauty and really makes you think, like really makes you think. And Sleeping Beauty, I, know, I can't find it in there at the moment, but um, she basically says that it's the first time that you get introduced to the fact that it's okay for a man to kiss an unconscious woman. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yes. And, and, it just, and it's just things like that that are really subtle that suddenly blow your brain and think, oh, my goodness. Yeah. One of the first fairy tales that I ever taught was it, 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 that I was taught is it's okay for a man to, to kiss an unconscious woman without her permission, which is obviously not okay. So a bit controversial. However, they're really fascinating and she's amazing. I think that that sounds like a great book. They all they're all books I've not heard of and I will if they've got the colorful to the your bookcase behind you if they look as colorful as that I'll buy the hard copies. But Yay. I and, you know we didn't we didn't get Oh, I missed on. one out. I missed one out, sorry. The other one is Mark Manson, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. So, let me hold on what I was going to say because that's going to bring another that's going to be a different <laughs> so I think you know your your point on fairy tales if we had enough time 
is something probably I, I know I don't give enough thought to, and I'm sure others don't. And like you say, that the subtleties around the messaging of what we receive as children and what children see. Um, and I think that's profound. I think actually more broadly than just uh, diversity, gender, I think generally you know, aspirations at all, you know, whether come on to things like sort of schooling, albeit I'm holding myself back from asking you about your comment at the start, but we'll, we'll do we'll a round need another, two. We'll need um, another two hours but, on that But one. actually, all, you know, all of those <laughs> things and the subtleties, and I think, you know, to your point, you've, being aware of the subtleties seems is a really key point. So I think what you've been saying to that, not, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I don't usually do this to this question. I usually let this one run. But that for me, and it, it's a personal thing, I tend to be highly skeptical of books that have been highly marketed, which is uh, probably really hypocritical given the four-hour work week. But I came to that when I, I came to that when I was older, <laughs> yeah. so I, I'd missed the marketing. But why that book? Because I go on, why that book? Well, so I follow him anyway, and on his newsletter, and I think he's a great writer. I think he has a great way of making you think differently. And just in general, when I talk about internal and external validation, if we gave less of a fuck, about what other people think of us and how we are perceived by others, the more liberating it is to be our true selves. So even if you just take the title, for me, I know that part of my disentanglement from my patterns has been around it's okay to be myself. And for me to be myself and for me to be my true self to a certain extent, I have to give less of a fuck. However, I give more of a fuck about other things that are massively important and and I think I think I, I guess in summary for me I I used to live life the wrong way around and that was around kind of profit and the amount of money I earned in a career and now it's about people planet and purpose over profit and to think that way I think I have to give more of a fuck about other things than potentially about making the biggest profit that I can. Now, profit is nice too, but it's not my driving reason for doing what I do. And Lindsay, I wish we had two hours to continue because I'm going to not pick you up on that because I think it's a really powerful point. And I think like you say to that, actually, what is one of the biggest forms of external validation in the world? Well, money, you know, and the people seen with lots of money are therefore seen as better and and all of the, the problems that brings. And actually, I think, you know, from the, just from my small sample of people I know in the world, which isn't a lot of them, there are some people who have lots of money who are great people. There are some who do not, who have lots of money and are not great people. And equally, there are some people with money who are very happy and some people who are very unhappy. And I think, uh, I think particularly in our industry, I think people confuse financial reward with happiness but I, I'm, I'm monologuing now, so I'm going to stop. And 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 status and status with happiness as well, which is the next job, the bigger job, the more more money, more money, and that isn't necessarily the path that we all want to follow. And this nicely brings me on to my last question. I promise it is. Oh, what's the last question? <laughs> um, well, it's a three-parter. Um, so you can. And, and you can take this how you want. Uh, but the question is, okay. you have three people in front of you. And as I say, it follows on nicely from what you've just been saying, because those three people are at different stages of their consulting career. You have someone who's just starting out, and I, I take that to mean graduate level 21, 22, early on in their consulting, but it could be corporate, whatever career. Then you have someone who is the middle grades, let's call them manager. So late 20s, mid 20s, I don't want to put a label on it. I just say 
the grade because I think it's easier. And as someone who is approaching partner, they're at that whatever level below partner, they're closing in, they may be having conversations about becoming a partner. And the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those people? One. I have to try and make sure it's not a multi-part one because I could probably say an entire paragraph to each of them. The, so, no, I'll, I'll try and limit myself to one. Starting out, be courageous. Four to five years in, be unique. Partner, be curious. And I can expand on my reasons why for all of those. But, I mean, the, the last point in particular, be curious. And we believe, so I am going to have a paragraph just <laughs> to highlight that one. We believe that the people at the top know all of the answers. And they know best because they've got there. The best leaders at the top know that they don't know the answers and they can embrace not knowing, they can embrace not being the expert and they can embrace the fact that actually other people may have better answers than themselves, which is why Be Curious for me is they make the decisions, but they mine for the uniqueness and the difference and the diversity and are just the best leaders that they can possibly be but they don't have to know the answer. Well, I think that is a fantastic place for us to, to draw to a close. Like you say, I think there could be a live episode where we do CrossFit plus part two. <laughs> um, and may, maybe, maybe we don't make it video because it'll be highly embarrassing for me. But Lindsay, this has been brilliant. Really enjoyed our chat, getting your, your perspective on all of the topics and a lot of topics that I have not covered with anyone else. And one of the reasons, and as you know, when we spoke, I was so keen to get you on is I think these are topics that should be and need to be spoken about and need a platform, um, but that are very often, for all the reasons you've highlighted, not talked about. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. If anyone who's listening to this wants to find out more about you or get in touch with you, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? Website, which is www.makingmischief. So not miss, but miss because there's more than enough Mr. Chiefs and not enough Miss Chiefs. Uh, makingmischief.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at makingmischief. And you can email me, which is chief at makingmischief.com. Fantastic. Well, I will put all of those in the show notes as well. So if someone's listening, they don't have to rewind. They can just go and find them. Um, so thank you very much. And all that's left to say is all the best for your week. Thank you. Much appreciated and great, great conversation. Thanks, Lindsay. Cheers. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.